Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, June 13th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Abe and I yesterday attended the uh, Jewish Leadership Conference uh, in New York, sponsored by the Tikva Fund. a subject of some controversy uh, because Ron DeSantis was invited to speak <clears throat> in part on the topic of uh, why Jews are flocking to Florida. And uh, the first venue uh, that booked the conference, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, uh, announced that it was no longer going to allow it to take place on its grounds, on the grounds that uh, there was a politician, they don't have politicians at their uh, venue. And then, of course, three days later, they had Governor Kathy Hochul at their venue. So that was a lie. Moved to Chelsea Piers, a giant entertainment uh, sports complex uh, in uh, on the river. And uh, then on Friday, the Chelsea Piers announced that even though it wasn't going to cancel it, it was going to take all the money that it made from the Tickle Fund and give it to LGBTQ issues. And then when we showed up on, on Sunday, there were a bunch of people, not very many, outnumbered by security and cops yelling and screaming and being really nasty, saying F DeSantis, but adding three letters to the F, screaming at us as we came in that we were complicit, DeSantis is a monster, F DeSantis, F DeSantis. It was really, a, I think, a noble display of American resistance to you know authority and power and a real mark of the genius of our system that it permits uh, 20 foul, idiot, moron, hysterical, lunatic ideologues um, to, uh, in order to express their right to peaceful protest, essentially incur bills in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for taxpayers from the NYPD have to send out the counterterrorism forces and all sorts of people to make sure that things don't go sideways. That was the entire thing. I will say this, there were 700 people in in the ballroom uh, at the conference, DeSantis was the last speaker, <clears throat> and I think it's fair to say that he hit it out of the park. I mean, it was basically a self-justification, but it was the case for Ron DeSantis' his governorship, why Florida is the free state, as he keeps calling it, and what he's done. He spoke for about half an hour without a note. Um, he was, uh, it, it, people say he's a cold fish and that he's, you know, he's not very sociable. And that may be the case. I don't know him and I, it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, but he showed the, I would say he showed why he, not that I'm a big institutional suck up, but you know, why he is somebody who, <laughs> Uh, he's 43 years old. He graduated from Yale and the Harvard Law School, then went into the JAG Corps, then ended up being the JAG for SEAL Team One, um, you know, became a congressman at the age of 31 or 32, became governor at 38 or 39, however old he was. Um, a, a incredibly impressive record and clearly a very, very smart guy who was able to bring in philosophical arguments, uh, procedural arguments, policy arguments for why he did what he did and why the uh, accusations against him are are false. Abe, what was your sense? Yeah, I thought it was a very impressive performance. I mean, it wasn't terribly long on ideas. You know, it was, as you say, his record. And 
the case that Florida is um, free generally and uh, a state where uh, religious freedom thrives, which is what made the fact that he had no notes um, and spoke as if he had, you know, he, he spoke as if he were reading off a teleprompter, but there was none. In other words, there was no grasping for words. There was nothing um, seemed at all less than f fluidly prepared. Um, and that made it more impressive because he had to shape what he was uh, marshalling forth as his record into this context, this specific context about uh, religious freedom and, and particularly as it pertains to Jews. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was um, quite impressive. I also noticed interesting that he came to a New York venue, spoke to an audience that was majority New Yorkers and had no compunction about mentioning the ways in which he surpassed New York. The, the ways right. in which his Florida had had has soared past New York uh, in terms of tourism and in terms of uh, school performance because of the because of letting uh, schools uh, classrooms meet in person and so on. Boasting, well, you know. Yeah. Uh, so his speech had two faces. It was this uh, praise of freedom. And so that was uh, how he opposed lockdowns. Uh, opposed the closing of school and like wanted people to be free. They, if they want to have a cheeseburger and a beer, he said to a largely kosher audience, maybe one or not largely kosher, but certainly I would say, you know, maybe a quarter kosher. Like it was a little bit of a funny, a funny way of phrasing it. But, you know, people know they can come to Florida and they, if they want to go out and have a cheeseburger and a beer, they want to do it outside. They can do it outside. If they don't mind being inside, no one's going to hassle them to wear a mask if they don't want to wear a mask. And then he he transited after about 20 minutes of that into safety. And he made two very interesting things. He said, uh, we, uh, I worked hard to get $1,000 bonuses for our law enforcement officers. Uh, if you move to Florida to work in law enforcement in some fashion, you get a $5,000 moving stipend. And he said, people understand based on everything that's going on and how we talk about things, our cities are not going to burn. Our cities are, we are not going to stand for that sort of thing. And so he was trying to, he was making a connection between the freedom that he, you know, fought to uh, preserve or advance during a moment when the American political system and the media elites were essentially saying that freedom was um, evil or murderous or treacherous or was, you know, was a, was at the very least a kind of, you know, selfish, monstrous something or other. And then saying uh, this also connects to safety, which of course is very important. And is a point that will be more explicitly as time goes on, which is that the crime surge that has happened in a lot of places really began with the pandemic. I mean, a lot of it started in some places like New York in 2019 with bail reform, but the pandemic actually led, you know, uh, led to a crime surge and that the limitation of the freedom of ordinary people liberated, uh, liberated the criminal element to go hog wild. And if he can make that claim, if he can successfully, or someone like him, make that connection and say, it is the people who, who opposed lockdown who are the only ones who understand that it is a free citizenry and the free movements of a free citizenry are what have kept America safe 
and that uh, if you're feeling unsafe where you live and where you are, it is because of people who wanted to do things like lockdowns. The policies that they, that they support and the, the legislation that they introduce and the things that they pass, there is a connection between wanting to limit your freedoms and wanting to expand the license of the criminal class in the United States. That is incredibly potent. That was, that's very Reagan, but updated. Like it's Reagan without going back to Reagan because it's an entirely new set of circumstances. All right, well, there's room to his right on that issue, right? I mean, he's, there's something of a revisionist history being peddled here as the Florida never locked down. They did. Ron DeSantis made that announcement in an afternoon briefing on yeah. fa- uh, uh, April 1st, 2020. And the state was locked down for the better part of six, seven weeks. Only then did it begin to reopen faster than much of the right. nation indeed, and they got a lot of flack for it. But anybody who wants to present themselves as anti-lockdown in a maximalist sense can get to his right. I don't know about that. Well, I'll tell you what, because who was opposed to locking down initially? Literally no one. Right. Literally no one. So then, which so is then why who, it's so a disingenuous no line of claim. attack. But it's also disingenuous to suggest you were always against it. He didn't say he was always against it. He said that he went with the science as the science emerged and he made a very important point actually which he said he went with classic epidemiological ideas about the spread of viral of um, respiratory diseases and it was the lockdown culture that invented new protocols for dealing with respiratory and uh, how to how to prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses that is a controversial subject but he is not wrong he is not wrong that these were new this was a new set of procedures that were being put in place and that they did not reflect prior understanding of how these things spread. And there was all this confusion about surfaces and aerosolizing and all of that. Look, I understand it'd be wildly uncharitable to suggest that he, you know, had this maximalist position or anybody did, which they didn't, but uncharitable. But I'm not, I mean, that's something you expect from a a no holds, holds barred primary in the event we have one. Right. No, absolutely. And I, I mean, fine. I think that's an argument that he can win pretty easily. Um, uh, number one. And number two, I'm really talking about whether what, whether this message has purchased once again with the people who are going to decide the election in 2024, which are the people in the middle who, you know, who are, you know, the sort of eight or nine percent in the middle who can who can be spurred one way or the other. Anyway, it was a very successful conference. Can I add hey, one more thing sorry, about DeSantis? I, yeah. He was very impressive, and what he said was right and true. Um, John, I, I want to hear what you think about this, but t- for me, he doesn't have any extra magic or charisma. Um, not, not the, he's not sorely lacking it either. But the, you know, I, I didn't sort of get that kind of th- that 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 sort of feeling you get when you say, "Oh, I can see how this guy." Um, can can sort of you know engage an enormous number of people um, just by virtue of who he is. It's not to say he didn't do well. He did very well in a very um, sort of on paper way, right. but the, that sort of ineffable quality, I, I didn't. I it wasn't there for me. No, he doesn't have it. But I will say this, which is that there have been other politicians in a very similar position to his who had it less. I mean, the best example I can give you is Scott Walker, who of course was the governor of Wisconsin, who was very briefly a front runner uh, in 2016. And Walker had a very similar argument to 
dissent. They tried to recall him. You know, they occupied uh, the left occupied the uh, state house in Madison. Remember when that apparently was okay to insurrect in, insurrectorily occupy a government building in order to prevent the good working order of government from proceeding. Um, I don't remember people saying that those people should be thrown in jail and you know held responsible for trying to overthrow the government of Wisconsin. Nonetheless. Uh, there was Walker. He held his ground. He did this. He did that. He had this very good record, all of that. But if you met him, if you were in rooms with him and stuff like that in 2014, it was almost impossible to imagine that this guy was going to go any further. He kind of sucked the air out of the room in a weird way, you know, as, as, as often the case with governors who are, of course, they don't need to be charismatic. You know, what they, what they need politically is to get, is to put points up on the board. They're not national figures. Okay, well, that's, so right. But if, but if DeSantis wants to become one, right now, yeah. I thought he was way better than Walker. This is this is my point, which is he was way better than Walker. Uh, and you know, like the figure, the character aside from Trump. So if we take Trump out of the equation, uh, the figures that were the most charismatic to me in say 2016 among Republicans, or you know, like Rubio was the most sort of instantly, you know, fluid, smart, young, you know, like, except for his incredible bungle in the debate, you know, just fluid and and funny and fat, quick on his feet and all that. And you could say, wow, what a great story. What this, what that. And it availed him nothing, really. And so I don't know that, I don't even know that that matters. You know, I don't know how much and people, people, if you're, if politics is now a Rorschach, if, if you now basically have a surety of 45% of the voters going for you, you know, if you were Quasimodo and you were the Republican nominee, 45% of the voters would go for you. Um, charisma may not be necessary anymore. Now, Trump, of course, had crazy charisma in whatever weird way he had it, also negative charisma in the sense that he repelled people. Um, does, did Biden have charisma in 2020? I don't think so. Uh you know, uh, his wacky qualities, I don't think were played a role whatsoever in, you know, getting him the nomination. It's that he was the more perfectly positioned person. So I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because Mike Pompeo also spoke at the conference, the former secretary of state, uh, former congressman, former CIA director, former director of counterintelligence. Pompeo's lost about 100 pounds. He is unrecognized. He is he is unrecognizable. Remember when Chris Christie lost all this weight? Chris Christie still looked like Chris Christie. Like if I hadn't known that it was Mike Pompeo, I wouldn't know that it was Mike Pompeo. And he he has personality to burn. He's vivid. He's funny. He's smart on his feet. He's kind of like, you know, he's very, he's like a guy. He's a real guy. You know, he was first in his class at West Point. You know, he's like a, and, you know, and 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 very fluid on foreign policy stuff. But I but yeah, go ahead. And he and Pompeo had people yelling out run in 2024. Uh, um, yeah. Zatis, to my memory, did not. Right. Anyway, he um, so Pompeo uh, was very likable and said everything the crowd wanted to hear about everything, including me. You know, it was like just pouring sugar in my ear about the Abraham Accords and Iran and the Chinese Communist Party and all of that. But, you know, going head to head, if you if those if they were the two people who were running, I still don't think that uh, that Pompeo's, you know, personality would overtake DeSantis's 
record and the sense that DeSantis is somebody who really has battle scars from fighting in the culture wars and has shown real kind of like deliberate, um, you know, you would call it courage, but I, courage is not quite the right word because he obviously understands that it, it doesn't take courage to win the battle that you're going to win in the state with the voters that you want who are your voters. But um, it means that he is relatively um, inoculated against the power of liberal institutions to mock him or put him down or, or make him a laughing or, you know, like turn him into a villain. And you know how important that is. You know how important that is to Republican voters. I mean, it may be one of the most important qualities that a Republican politician can have now is the idea of they don't get to me. Press doesn't get to me. Hollywood doesn't get to me. Disney doesn't get to me. In fact, I can give as good as I get. I mean, that is whether you have charisma or not, the fact that you did that, I don't know. It seems to me it's a pretty, it's pretty potent. Obviously, Trump is standing there. And if he runs, I don't think either of these guys runs, but I don't know. Um, so the whole thing is kind of is is kind of moot. But but uh, these were two very, very interesting presentations and it was a really great conference and when it rolls around again next year if you don't go if you haven't been it's really worth a it's really worth a ticket to new york to attend the jewish leadership conference sponsored by the tikva fund our very good friends and it was a real honor to be president present as um as commentaries a very dear friend and important mentor and uh one of the people who has really kept the magazine going um for particularly in the last 30 years roger hertog was awarded the Herzl Prize. Uh, Roger is a heroic figure to many of us and a heroic figure of commentary. And he uh, and he has stepped down as head of the Tikva Fund and is now uh, its chairman emeritus. And it was really great to see him uh, get his due because uh, for a person of his uh, central importance to conservative thinking, conservative ideas and Jewish thought, uh, he is very reticent to take praise. He does not go around, you know, like seizing seizing the spotlight or seizing the stage and so he got this moment and he'll wait the most important moment for him publicly since he was roasted by commentary he was our second roastee and uh and it was a, that was a great event that was like 10 11 years ago and it, this moment for by the way in which i can now tell you i think i've mentioned this before but i'm now going to tell you our roastee for 2022 is none other than my co-panelist uh, yesterday at the Jewish uh, Leadership Conference, Barry Weiss, editor of Common Sense, uh, the great uh, anti-woke warrior, the great fighter for uh, uh, the causes that we all believe in, um, and uh, a great friend to a great friend to us, and somebody who nonetheless could get taken down a few pegs, and that's what the roast is all for. So we will be giving you details, but get excited, the roast of Barry Weiss. November 2022 in New York City. We will be giving you lots of details. We may even have a contest or two for tickets. But basically, uh, this is a this is a pricey ask. Uh, costs a lot of money to go to the conference, buy go to the roast, buy a table at the roast, all of that. But it is one of the great events uh, of the year. And also, uh, speaking of other friends of commentary and board members of commentary, as Roger was for many years, I want to talk to you about Dan Senor. Uh, who is on the commentary board, but more importantly for our purposes right now, is the host of the really spectacular Call Me Back podcast, formerly post-corona. I've talked to you about it before. 
this week, you got to listen. You got to listen and you got to be sobered and you got to steal yourself for a long fight because he has a fantastic podcast this week with Richard Fontaine, head of the Center for uh, American National Security or uh, CNAS. I can't remember what the uh, initials stand for. New American Security, something like that. Uh, former uh, Bush administration official, head, uh, member of the Defense Policy Board and one of the most uh, uh, sage and clarifying figures uh, talking about American foreign policy. And their subject is uh, the transition in the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine toward the long slog. Um, and, you know, after the sort of the, the high of the last couple of months and the incredible performance of the Ukrainians in resisting the Russians and beating them back from Kiev and, and elsewhere, uh, the Russians have turned things around are now fighting the kind of war that they know how to fight, as he says, over the last hundred years, this war, uh, and a, tra a war of heavy artillery, heavy casualty, heavy conventional um, in which they just grind down, they try to grind things down and overwhelm, and uh, and that uh, what's going on in the Donbass um, and the kind of uh, turnaround in their fortunes uh, suggests that uh, any hope that we may have had that the stunning um, results of the first 60 days of the war uh, in which the Ukrainians showed themselves more than equal to battering uh, Russia and its uh, terrible strategy that the Russians have regrouped and are now fighting the way they want to fight. Their morale is a little higher. The Ukrainian morale uh, in, in, the, in the East is getting low. Their supplies are getting low. And, uh, and so that, um, uh, you know, the, the concern that Dan and Fontaine both express in the podcast is that uh, is, is the question of Western resolve in the face of a grinding long war. We forget that despite the fact that we think, oh, we were at war in Afghanistan for 20 years or we were at war in Iraq for so long, that what was conventionally thought of as war really since the 1980s, we're not used to that. We're not used to sort of a long war of trenches and, you know, um, you know, fighting yard by yard by yard. Like we have these lightning advances, you know, America in the first Gulf War and in Iraq, armies melting away and disappearing. Uh, and then much of what happens after that just being rear guard terrorist action. This is like an old timey, nightmarish war of the sort that we had hoped we would never really see again necessarily. And then the question is, will the West have the resolve to continue doing what it needs to do to help Iraq, uh, Ukraine uh, as the public's attention wavers and as the, you know, and as the results start getting muddier and muddier. And so it's a very sobering podcast, but it's a very important one to listen to. That's Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast with Richard Fontaine, go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts and subscribe because every week uh, Dan has uh, something really special for you there. So that's S-E-N-O-R, the Dan Senor podcast, call me back. Uh, so uh, the big news is guns, right? That's the big news. Guns, guns, guns. They've, they've the Senate, 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats have come together on a committee and come up with a framework for a piece of legislation that can uh, pass uh, cloture and therefore be signed into become law and be signed into law. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, it's in everybody's interest uh, in the Senate 
who d- doesn't really oppose it, who doesn't say that this is the camel's nose in the tent of you know total gun restriction, uh, including, by the way, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, who seems to have welcomed uh, the results of this, uh, this deal. Um, it's in everybody's interest to say, we've done something historic here. You know, we've moved, we have a bipartisan agreement on something historic. Nothing has been done on this issue for 30 years. We've really broken a logjam. But of course, Democrats and the House Democrats are not going to like the results of this negotiation because they are very, they're relatively modest. Noah, how do you game it out? Yeah, I think this probably puts a cap on the issue. It's certainly not a very sexy approach to what everybody wants uh, on the gun control side, but it is something. And what have we been hearing from Democratic lawmakers from the president on down? Do something doesn't matter what it is, do something. Something has to be done. Lethargy, the inaction, is no longer tolerable. Well, here's something. And if all of a sudden you turn around and say, well, this isn't the something that we wanted, then it completely undermines the president's message. The president will not be able to endorse that message, having already endorsed the do something message. So they'll take what they can get. Can we talk about the the substance of the something? No. Um, of course, no. we can talk about the substance. That's that's what um, we're here for is to talk about the substance. Please, I think it's a particularly good something, actually. Uh, particularly the 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 more extensive background checks for uh, those under I think it's twenty five. Is that what it is? Um, that's that's kind of sort of exactly what what uh, we were talking about. Uh, in the immediate aftermath well, of yeah. Valdic, and, it's and this what, is why it frameworks. It's, it's something similar to what uh, uh, Ross Douthat um, had had proposed in a column that he wrote about a week later. Well, this is why frameworks are difficult to analyze in the absence of actual legislative language, because I don't know what that pertains to. What a lot of gun control advocates wanted to see were um, background checks for private sales, one individual selling to another individual. The the actual. Um, legwork, the logistics of making that happen are to me quite confusing. So I'd like to see, uh, and, and expensive to the extent that they would actually prohibit your ability to sell, to sell a private good to a private citizen, which I'm not sure if that passes constitutional muster. Otherwise, there's hardening schools, money for mental health. I think there were uh, reducing the mens rea for straw purchases to make it more, e- easily, uh, more easy to prosecute straw purchasers. All that stuff is good. But again, I want to see legislative language to see if what we're talking about is actually feasible. Look, the most important aspect of this bill, the, 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 the place that it's, it's clearly will spend the most money, and, but is the vaguest, is, uh, is boosting uh, spending on mental health. And I mean, the phrase that is used in some of this language is many billions of dollars to uh, increase mental health support. And that, I think everybody has said that we are in a mental health crisis and that, you know, therefore you can't do anything unless you start addressing uh, uh, mental health questions. But on the other hand, just raining down billions of dollars on school districts so they can hire some, you know, some counselor who for all we know knows nothing about nothing uh you know will that that is something that sounds really good and then we don't know whether or not over time you know it's something that will be not not that it would do more harm than good but that it will be you know sort of done in a particularly feckless and useless way um because it's it's so important but of course then everybody 
nobody knows what it means or nobody knows what it is that should be done. Should you have CBT therapists? Should you have DBT therapists? Should you use what modality should you use? Should kids be, you know, screened with um, testing that will show that they have a, a, a you know, they, they, they have a, a history of doing things that raises red flags or is that testing unconstitutional? Uh, how will they, how will this interfere with parents? Nonetheless, I think the thing that is going to push this through uh, is the mental health spending, because I don't think, I think that when people say, when people vote against it, you're going to say, oh, you don't think there's a mental health crisis in America that we really need to address? Uh, you know, that that is, I think, so many people in this country have had this experience over the last couple of years in particular, um, that that is a, it's interesting that that's really at the heart of it, but everybody wants to talk about like nonsense, like the boyfriend there's a, loophole. There's a perversity. It closes the boyfriend loophole. There's a perversity to the mental health aspect of this that I, that could exacerbate the problem insofar as everything is bureaucratized now in school. If you're to make a complaint, for example, against somebody who you feel to be a problem or a potential problem, um, the liability uh, shared by everybody who's in, in that person's orbit is priority number one. So there are protocols you have to adhere to um, that are prolonged, that are uh, involve you know allowing everybody to have their opportunities to make their cases, for example, and the the preponderance of evidence that are that's needed to justify intervention against this individual is very difficult to accumulate, um, which can result in nothing getting done. Indeed, that's been the experience that I've encountered recently in my particular school district. Um, the human touch is gradually being removed from the equation. The common sense required to perform the kind of intervention, early intervention that's necessary in, the, in these people's lives, these troubled people's lives, is being removed from the equation in favor of a much more jurisprudential approach that's, again, bureaucratized and systematic, step-by-step, -step, and seems to me, and mandated in, in by law in many cases, and seems to me um, unequal to the problem because it, um, it removes personal judgment from the equation in a way that I don't think will actually solve the problem. I mean, look, you, you raise an essential conundrum that is almost unsolvable, which is that mental health support and mental health treatment, aside from that which is pharma, you know, pharmacological, which has to be overseen by a medical doctor, by, by a psychiatrist who knows the risks and knows what is, it was contraindicated, what you don't mix together and what you, and how how things titrate in and out of blood and all of that. That's a that's a that's a medicalized process. Mental health therapy is an incredibly individuated thing. And uh and there is almost no um way to measure the success or failure of any individual mental health provider. There is none. There are no benchmarks. You know, it's not like there's an oncologist who is really great because 70% of their patients go into remission after they do X, Y, or Z treatment. Or, you know, this guy is famous as a, as a you know, incredible diagnostician uh, as, a, as an endocrinologist can diagnose things on the basis of, and it turns out that he's right or something like that. Like you just, you don't know. You don't know whether somebody gets better on their own. You don't know whether a therapist can be blamed if somebody doesn't get better on, on their own. 
And you're talking about a problem of, you know, involving hundreds of millions of people. I mean, not that hundreds of millions of people are in mental health crisis, but say ten, tens of millions of people. And can, are there really going to be 100,000 really good therapists who are going to help them, who will get federal supports from this system? In that sense, you kind of want a more bureaucratized system. You want some kind of fail-safes or checks that might be in the form of something much more fact-based. Like I say, like, you know, there are these checklists and tests and things where they can sort of determine things like, is suicidality is, is serious? You know, is, is somebody actually having suicidal thoughts that might lead to suicidal actions? There are protocols now and like a series of questions that can help with something like that. Um, that's mental health, but it's not treatment. It's diagnostic, it's diagnostics and, and treatment. Like, can we actually, who knows what somebody will, somebody will bring somebody in and put crystals on their forehead and, and burn incense and make them say mantras. And you know what? That might work because half of this is placebo anyway. So it's a very, it's a very interesting moment. You know what I mean? It's, a, it's like, but at least they're not, I mean, they're throwing money at something that money needs to be thrown at. I mean, it may be that what really needs to be thrown at is the construction and building of new uh, institutions where people who are, you know, violent schizophrenics can go, but that doesn't solve the gun problem. That's not the problem of, you know, of, of Uvalde or something like that. And as I, they threw in a couple of these sort of idiot things like the, the boyfriend loophole so that, you know, somebody who you know, has guns in your houses and convicted of domestic violence can be, blah, blah, blah. you know, this is some, these kind of weird social science-y games that they, they start uh, playing with. So the two major things are the spending of mental health and then this question of expanded background checks or slowing down the background check process or something like that. Um, and I, you know, I, uh, I, I, it's just interesting. It'll be interesting to see who, you know, when they put their finger in the air, when you have various politicians who are going to put their fingers in the air, like the ones who are running for re-election. If you're Mike Lee in Utah or you're Lisa, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, Lisa Murkowski's primary isn't even until the middle of August. What's she going to do? Or what's she going to say? Is she going to, is she going to do something that will give, uh, will leave room on, on her right to push her on the question of whether or not She's gone soft on guns. Um, if this is all common sense, will Mike Lee vote for it or vote against it? You have to presume he'll vote against it. But I don't know. Politically, it's... What about the question of whether or not they really come together to do something and what that means politically? Is this like a one-off? Yes. yes. You, could, you need to speak because we're on a... We're, we're, we're on the ra we're on the radio here. Yeah, so I agree with Abe. Um, okay. A one off. It was so painful to get to this. Right, but you know, I, I said this the other week, and it is true that um, if you do things that are relatively unambitious and that show some results, that's how you build the foundation for doing things in a bipartisan manner. I mean, that's the funny part of it is nobody is really for bipartisanship. No real serious political way. Everybody thinks that the other guy is a monster and should be destroyed and be killed. So 
the only way to overcome that is for there to be bipartisan successes. The only way for bipartisan successes, for bipartisanship even to begin to put its toe in the water again, is to do things on a modest scale. Uh, and and but what's more, do them on a modest scale in response to something big enough that it's as scary not to do something as it is to do something. And then if two years later, it turns out that three or four of these provisions have had some positive results, however you want to measure that, then you got, you've got a foundation to say you can do it again on criminal on some kind of criminal justice matter or something. I don't know. All right, where do we go now? We just talked about inflation guns. or Biden whisper campaign. Or Biden and Saudi Arabia. So many things. Biden, I don't know if you know this, Biden said he wasn't going, he's thinking of going to Saudi Arabia. And then 10 minutes later, he said he's going to Saudi Arabia because he's supposed to say he's thinking about going, but hasn't made up his mind. And then, of course, he's obviously made up his mind. So once again, showing the unique quality of razor sharp command and grasp of the details of his presidency that has you know, really characterized it thus far. Yeah, that's really inflation? weird because, <clears throat> well, yeah, we should talk about inflation because energy is inflation, but it's very strange. His his trip to the kingdom was first uh, announced that they were exploring it in early March. Um, the scuttlebutt was they had settled on this in late May, early June, and then it was June 2 that the kingdom and the OPEC uh, cartel that it leads said that they were increasing production, which coincided with the president having sealed the deal on this trip. So the announcement that the trip was actually happening was a mere for formality. For anybody who's been paying attention to this, this has been a done deal for weeks. But it's not a done deal because he's still they still haven't formally announced that they're doing it. And then there is the question of what do they want? What do they want? And the big question is, is there gonna be some form of deal that Biden can claim to have brokered for some kind of entente between Israel and Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's the funny part here is that there's a, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of, uh, I don't know what you call it, like a, a lot is up in the air, uh, including that the Israeli government is on the verge of collapse. But um, I don't think he's gonna wanna go there and wander around Saudi Arabia having said that, you know, having literally uh, frozen all you know military sales to Saudi Arabia because of the uh, murder of uh, of, uh, of Khashoggi. Um, he's then going to wander around there without getting something, and what is he going to get? More oil flowing? I mean, that's it. He's going to go with hat in hand and then say, "I got more oil flowing." He already got the more oil flowing, supposedly. Well, but then so he has to now do his part. But it's it, there's so, yeah, look, he's got to say something about Khashoggi. I mean, in terms of what he's going to, you know, what 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 the continued posture of the U.S. is, is going to be here on this. If we're going to, you know, keep keep raking the Saudis over the coals, you know, uh, forever over this or not. And um, the Saudis are going to push him on Iran, too, um, because to their great consternation, he's been trying to get a, another JCPOA, uh, which which they can't stand. So I don't know what he's going to say about that. Listen, energy is the heart of the inflation problem that we're experiencing now. Uh, it contributes to the rising cost of every other good. And um, the president doesn't have very much of, all, of anything to say about this. We got this number 
on Friday, this um, CPI and core CPI, uh, and found that it's rising, you know, your cost of consumer prices are rising at the fastest pace since December of 1981. Uh, food is up, shelter is up dramatically, energy is up by staggering amounts, wage growth is slowing, higher for, uh, employers are hiring, freeze, are freezing their hiring, and the Fed is under a lot of pressure to cool the economy, even if that invites a downturn. Um, and savings are down. People are saving, are chewing into the saving that they acc accumulated over the course of the pandemic and saving rates, according to St. Louis Fed, is down to a point that it hasn't been since the fall of 2008, which is rather ominous. Um, and the president says, well, this is Putin's price hike. That's what he said on, uh, on Friday. And you have people like Harvard economist, Jason Furman saying there's nothing that can be done about energy prices. But the president is doing a lot of the things that he just was reluctant to do, notably the thaw in relations with Saudi Arabia, as we said, but also opening up federal leasing, which has been shut down on day one of this presidency. What he's not doing is all the other executive orders, the suspension of drilling leases in Anwar, uh, the canceling of three of these already scheduled offshore oil leases, um, allowing federal agencies to resume, quote, subsidizing fossil fuel producers, whatever that means, just essentially, I guess, participating in the economy. Um, but generally, They've been loath to address all this stuff that they've been doing to appease the, the green energy contingent on the Democratic Party's left, uh, which has thus far and still continues to, in many ways, guide policy. And at the same time, they're trying to argue, you know, there, there's nothing we can do while also doing things that are relevant. It's a completely incoherent policy and one that the president and the people around him don't seem inclined to actually address in any logical fashion. Otherwise, they would be throwing everything they could against the wall and seeing if it sticks. Uh, and they're just not. I mean, so they're saying, I mean, the president was on, what was it? Kimmel, one late yeah. night host. I forget, Jimmy Colbert, Kimmel. one of them. Jimmy Kimmel. They said, you know, inflation is is killing us. Like, he admitted, inflation is, is, I forget exactly what the words were, but it was something existential. Uh, so they're aware of the scale of the problem, but they're just not willing to address the problem as though it were literally existential for this for his presidency and the party in power. Right, Biden well, is still the, running with the Putin price hike line. Yeah. Uh, he said it only last week. And I think the central point here, you make the, the central point, which is it's an existential crisis, but they are themselves wedded to the idea that the use of fossil fuels is an existential crisis for the planet. And therefore, they cannot have their fingerprints on loosening up the exploration a deployment and use of fossil fuels, which is the only thing that he can do with a stroke of his pen that would be dramatic enough to send a signal to the world that that you know that the president wants there to be more and freer oil and natural gas. I mean, absent him, you know, I mean, so he goes and he somehow bribes Saudi Arabia to increase oil production. Which, by the way, it might want to do anyway, because gas is, you know, if you're if you can sell if you can sell what you got at one hundred and forty dollars a barrel, you probably want to bring some barrels up to sell it because now that's how you get rich. Um, similarly, by the way, if he were to liberalize uh, some of the oil and glass, gas exploration rules in the United States, uh, some of that stuff slowed way down in the mid uh, teens because gas prices fell so low and natural gas prices fell so low that it was getting uneconomical to do exploration. And now, of course, that would be the opposite. Now, you know, there's a there's a, a mad inflationary spiral and you 
that's when you want to start that's when you it, it seems like a wise move to you know to start figuring out how to pull things up out of the ground fast enough to take advantage of higher prices even if when you do it you're kind of lowering prices but it's still if you lower prices of 140 dollars a barrel which is what somebody thinks goldman sachs i think thinks we're going to hit by the end of the summer to a hundred dollars about you're still going to get a hundred dollars a barrel and that's a lot of money and that's worth exploring for but if but if America sends a signal that we are not in the oil exploration business anymore, continues to send that signal. I don't know why there would be any change in the emotional dynamic that contributes to inflation. You know, like help, that kind of help is on the way thing is important. Or you just figure, you know what, it couldn't happen fast enough anyway. So what the hell, I'm not going to push for oil and get, we'll just see where the chips fall where they may, which ultimately probably is what's going to happen anyway. I mean, is nobody thinks inflation is going to drop before November in any appreciable fashion. Bit categories will drop, right? Categories will decline. But I mean, that's what the president was touting. <clears throat> Apparently, he was saying in the same quote. Uh, I want to actually find the the details, but it was in the same quote he was saying, um, you know, core CPI which isn't food or fuel, the stuff that's really, really expensive and exploding in, in cost day by day. Core CPI is, is moderating. Now, that doesn't mean it's down. It's moderating. It's up. It beat yeah. expectations. We expected it to go up by less than it actually did, but it's moderating. Who the hell cares? Who gives a crap? If you're consumer good, electronics, cars, whatever, big purchases, that you are otherwise you know, inclined perhaps to put off for a rainy day are going down, but you can't afford the basic stuff of subsistence living. Who cares? I mean, there was that, there was that number that said that households, the average American household is now spending $460 a month more than it did a year ago on, on its ordinary expenses. That is the single best reflection of any way of describing what inflation does to people. Essentially, everybody's taxes have been raised by $5,000 or $5,400 a year. Just imagine if you were Biden and it's like, I just, I became president and in the course of my 18 months of presidency, your taxes went up $5,500. Vote for my party in November and in 2024. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't even know how you answer it. I don't even know. First of all, everybody feels it. It's not something you need, even need to explain or put in a number. It's, it's very helpful as a sort of graphic representation of the pain. But the pain is unmistakable. And the, and the simple fact of the matter is that though you can say there's some of Putin and there's some of the pandemic and there's this and there's that, and there's that, there is the simple fact of the matter, which is that Inflation was at 1.2% when Biden took office, and it's now almost to 10%. And, and that, that, I don't know, there's no... Also, <laughs> uh, there, you know, so when people want to sort of come to his defense on this, they'll say, well, you know, at this point, it's out of his hands. You know, what can he do? There's this fact, there's the factors that you just named. But the problem, so they say, what's he supposed to do? The problem is what he, what he already did. You know, that's 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 already structurally 
uh, a constituent part of what we're dealing with here. He wasn't supposed to come in and spend an exorbitant amount of money that as as many people kind of across the political spectrum had said at the time. And he poo pooed. Right. Look, I mean, it's simple. The only thing that's going to that's going to break that, you know, inflation rising from 8.1 to 8.6 on the way to God knows wherever. And there are a lot of other people who think that it's even being understated is for the Fed to induce a recession. I mean, you know, and we're, there's there's uh, there's this idea being expressed that um, Jay Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, is going to announce on Wednesday a uh, 75 basis point increase, um, you know, in, in in loan rates. Like, that's that's three times what they've been raised at, at one go in I don't know how many decades. And he'd be doing that in order to do it, you know, to see if shock can help um and man, that'll be shocking like god i mean you know again like you're you're introducing all this uncertainty into how people are going to react to this what does it mean someone's buying a house and then suddenly they're in the interest rate that they they haven't quite locked in yet goes up two and a half percent well, listen here's the problem for republicans so the new line now is on the on the left well, what's the Republican plan for addressing inflation, which is the most incoherent political strategy you could possibly pursue? It is essentially confessing that you have no idea what you're doing, no idea how to get out of this. And well, what about them? They don't have any idea either. Um, that's a problem if you're the party in power and you're talking about the minority party that's seeking power. But the Republican Party has fallen out so hard with its free market principles and is so consumed with a very loud base that has become enamored with protectionism and government intervention into the private sector, but they can't articulate uh, Volkerism. Uh, certainly won't welcome it, even though nobody really would, obviously it involves pain, but that is a free market philosophy. That is the prescription that we know works for runaway inflation. And it involves a cooling economy, a, recess, or a recessionary traits in the economy and pain, pain shared by average consumers. That's a tough sell, particularly in this political moment with the Republican Party that we have now. Well, look, I don't know why the Republican Party, I mean, to be honest, you're right. And there are weird signs of all these cross pressures, like the fact that Marco Rubio today seems to have come out in favor of a $15 an hour minimum wage, just finally, you know, basically making the point that he has now crossed he is now crossed from being a coherent, you know. Which would do nothing like, but like, increase inflationary yeah. pressure. Wage growth but is a symptom. Case, it doesn't matter because it's all, it's all just a florid gesture of, with, no, with no meaning, uh, except that he's, you know, waving to the NatCons and this, you know, and, and trying to meet Josh Hawley in some weird economic nationalist place that is not, you know, just putting on new clothes and which suggests they never had any clothes to begin with. But I mean, you're right, but I don't know why Republicans, Republicans don't need to have a strategy. By the way, Republicans do have a strategy to tame inflation, to be fair. What are, every Republican says, open up the oil fields provide new leases for for fracking on on you know on federal grounds make it easier lower regulations lower regulate stop cease regulating the energy economy so much 
Look, that's that is part plan. of it. That is, that is their, part of it. What, and other made, plan, what other political plan could there be? Well, there is none. And the, the uh, frankly, the Fed will take care of this. But it's presumably, all the Fed, right. In the event that the Fed yeah. induces a recession with rate hikes um, sometime in late 2022, early 2023, the, the forces of history may rescue Republicans from having to present a coherent message here. Republican presidents have tended to inherit recessions for the last 30 years. I don't remember the last time a Democrat had a yeah. recession on his hands. Well, uh, and if it's a short well, one, it could it could be relieved by the time 2024 comes around. Right. Well, I, anyway, I, I, I'm just saying, like, I think that the that the. The whole point is that Biden and the Bidenites are like proof rock. What, what, whatever happens and then things happen from Afghanistan to inflation to crime. They say, having done something, no, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. Well, of course it wasn't. He didn't want Afghanistan to fall to pieces. He didn't want inflation at 10%. That's not what he meant. Doesn't matter what he meant. No longer matters what he meant. What matters is the result. And there's never been a more dramatic result from a series of policies instituted and pretty much over the over the complete, you know, over the dead body of the opposing party. I mean, doing these, passing these pieces of legislation with the exception of the infrastructure bill with 50 votes in the Senate, that means you own it. Like there is no common ownership. He's got no one to blame but himself. No one, you know, the only thing, the only person he could get on is he's fall in front of and thank the Lord that he exists is Joe Manchin for saving him from a 22% inflation rate if Build Back Better had passed. Imagine where we would be if Build Back Better had passed. Can you even contemplate the inflationary, where we would be in an inflationary spiral if there had been Build Back Better last November? I mean, I can't even, you know, it's, it would be like, you know, Germany, it would be like we'd be wallpapering, we'd be wallpapering our rooms with dollar bills. But all uh, Biden could do is, is demonize Manchin for, for, Getting in the way of, of more chaos. Yeah, well, there you go. So um, now let me take a minute to talk to you about our friend David Bonson, another friend of the another friend of the podcast, another like Dan Senior contributor commentary, money manager, three and a half billion dollars under management, has written for commentary, has has uh, you know, did the great uh, DC today and uh, following uh, the, my go-to on, on COVID facts uh, during the pan- pandemic. And I keep telling you, and you got to do it. You got to read it. You got to go get it. David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Every one of those truths is something that if Joe Biden had just listened to one of the 250, maybe we wouldn't be in the fix that we're in today. Uh, a daily primer on, on economics, human flourishing, human dignity, and free markets, free economy, and uh, ordered liberty. Um, one topic a day, great quotes from great economists, theologians, thinkers. Go get the book. David is a very wise and very sensible analyst, macro, micro, and in every way. And that's David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, and his book, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. David, uh, David is the sort of person who, you know, has really good ideas to help people with small businesses. And let me talk to you now about small businesses and another great idea for helping small businesses, which is Bambi. 
Because when running a business, HR issues can kill you, wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi spelt B-A-M-B-E-E was created specifically for small business to provide a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. So go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E.com slash commentary. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E.com slash commentary. So, you know, uh, the January 6th hearings are beginning again today. And the big witness of the morning, uh, David Stepien, the Trump campaign manager, his wife has gone into labor, so he is now not uh, testifying. But I, I got to share with you my one thought about this, and I think we were... Um, we were very uh, open and accepting of the value of the Thursday night hearing more than a lot of people, a less than knowing, knowing me. Um, but every indication we're getting from these uh, leaks about where they are, where they're going, where the committee is going and all of that suggests that whatever sobriety was shown on Thursday night uh, is about to go out the window as they drink deep from the dregs of resistance hooch. Um, and, you know, leaking that they're ready to present a bill of particulars to the Justice Department to indict Trump on charges of conspiracy to overturn the results of the election. Uh, you know, rather than keeping their counsel, being quiet, building a case, having the case seem airtight, and then lowering the boom, which is the way you do it if you're not, you know, if you're not like uh, just trying to satisfy a certain small, relatively small contingent. What do you guys think? Well, it's to satisfy a relatively small contingent and also to um, take a stab at, at, making some headway in, in the midterms. So, you know, they got to be explosive. Highly such- cynical and I think a little premature. Um, I'm, I'm highly cynical. Well, the analysis that this is just going to devolve into resistance porn is predicated on so far 10 minutes of open testimony in the second day of this hearing. Now, well, I'm, with you. I'm, I'm with, with you that the signals leaves. that we're hearing, well, I'm a fan, uh, yeah. the, that the signals that we're hearing are disconcerting insofar as they're focusing today on presenting the same testimony that we heard on Thursday night. The, the establishment of malice on the part of the president who continued to uh, con- con- contend that there was fraud in this election uh, when he had no reason to believe that was true and the vast preponderance of evidence suggesting it was false, including everybody around him, save the true nutters like Navarro, who were convincing the president of that everybody was telling him a lie. Um, we established that on Thursday. We've established that in the minds of everybody who is capable of adjudicating this issue with independence and, and objectivity quite earlier than that. But we certainly established it on Thursday. To do it again today seems like a waste of time. And I'm with you that that's a disconcerting contention on their part or their, their shift of focus. It's also giving everybody on the dais a bite at this apple, which they didn't get on Thursday night. 
And that's part of the regular process of committee hearings. It's really obnoxious, but everybody needs their, their 10, 15 minutes in front of the camera. Uh, however, what Liz Cheney laid out, what this committee intends to establish over the course of the next several days of hearings um, raises a lot of red flags, is particularly uh, interesting and, and has a lot of implications, and we're not there yet. So I'm disinclined to prejudge the next five days of hearings based on this one, although I'm willing to concede that this one may represent a missed opportunity. Okay, well, you you be disinclined all you like. I'm happy for you to be disinclined. Uh, I am not disinclined. Abe, I think you're not. Hey, listen, what Liz Cheney laid out on that night is nothing short of a breakdown of the constitutional order. Yeah, however, I want to point out that our friend Andy McCarthy wrote National Review, made a very important point, which is that this is not a court of law. And in a court of law, when you make accusations, the person who is being accused gets his day in court to argue the counter, to, to bring up the, the counter argument. And it is very clear that there will be no counter argument in the course of this hearing. Now, you can say that that's because Jim Jordan and, and, and McCarthy, like that, that Nancy Pelosi wouldn't let Jim Jordan sit on the committee and McCarthy didn't want to cooperate. And so the committee is a, is a goat rodeo as a result. However, it still stand, it is still the case that as a matter of fairness, or let's say just minimal public opinion support that, yeah, if you just get to say, make your own case without any countervailing objections being raised the entire time, then it's going to sound really bad. Who, where, where is the voice in the hearing that's going to come out and say, no, no, that's not how that happened. Or you were assuming that because X happened and Y happened, the two are connected. And that assumption is very flat. You know, that assumption is wrong. There is no connection. You know, I mean, the seven point plan that Liz Cheney alleged Trump and his people had used to conspire to overturn the results of the election is a very specific charge that suggests that there was a piece of paper on which seven points were written that were if then, then, and if then, and if then, if then, if then, if then. That piece of paper doesn't exist. The idea that there was a seven point plan is itself a, an act of um, rhetorical excess. And you could even say, um, uh, I can't even think of the word, I mean, disingenuousness or something like that. And, and uh, you know, and, I'm just taking the, the, the it's, not, it's not tea leaves I'm reading. I'm reading leaks from the committee saying they already have, they already have enough to indict Trump. Well, Zeigesund to you. Let's see the Justice Department indict Trump on the grounds that he said this and then two months later, this happened. Well, right, but let's Don't see have it. Bridging. Okay, let's I know. See it. Well, I mean, if that's what so we're, ta we're talking about, not it. having. Well, hang on. Andy McCarthy's objection here is that there's no alternative. There's, he doesn't get his day in court. Well, that would be it in the event that something gets handed down to the Justice Department and in the event that the Justice Department is inclined to pursue it, which seems highly unlikely. Republican objections to these proceedings so far have been very ad hoc. In my view, initially it was I'm Marco. Not... It was Marco Rubio saying, "Oh, this is a paid Hollywood advertisement. It was going to be a uh, producer put it on. It was going to be glitzy and glamorous." And then when it was sober and judicious, then the objective, the the objection was, "Oh, this is failing miserably," according to Mick Mulvaney, because it wasn't powerful or stunning or interesting. The, so the objection moved with the with the circumstances, just to fit the circumstances. And as we've said before, 
the notion here that if Republicans wanted a fair hearing, they would have they would have okayed a blue ribbon commission, an independent commission. Instead, what they got was a partisan affair, in part because they wanted a partisan affair to call I'm it a partisan affair. I'm not talking about Republicans. I'm not talking about what the Republican case is. I'm talking about what the case, what the actual case is. If they run something like this for the purpose of making Nicole Wallace happy, then fine, congratulations. It will be wildly ineffective and pointless. And they will, they will whatever goodwill they might have built up from the sobriety again of the first hearing, they will lose because that's who they are. They're going to lose it because they are so eager to make this case that they assume that the case is right and they're not you know, they need I'm not even sure what case they're trying to make. They're trying to make the case that there was a seven point plan to overturn the results of an election that was the result of a conspiracy between Trump, officials in the Trump White House and extremists outside the White House. And that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were activated by the White House with knowledge of forethought for the purpose of overturning the results of the election. It seems to me that there's only really one issue here that needs to be adjudicated, and that's that the president abdicated his responsibility to defend the Capitol for three and and a half hours. That's your that's your case. That's not their case. You that's That's part of I know it isn't. It's it's not it's not the part of the case that's getting the most attention. That is that's that's not their fault. That's what you heard. And what you heard is a very sobering thing. Their case is that the that the Proud Boys went to the Capitol an hour while Trump was speaking in order to case the joint, in order to breach the Capitol, in order to go in and do something to Mike Pence that would end, that would stop the count. That's that, their that, case. That that's pre- not well, that's actually I'm the Department of Justice. That's in the indictment. What? It's in the indictment. The the pre-planning, the, the occupy certain buildings, no. the, the shock troops, that's in the DOJ's no, indictment. that's them. The, no, they were quoting the connect- from the indictment. They no, showed us the a document. Connect- Noah, the connecting tissue here doesn't matter what the what the Proud Boys wanted to do. The purpose of this committee or what they're what they've set themselves on is the idea that with knowledge and purpose, they were activated on purpose by Trump to do an insurrection against the lawful counting of electoral votes with with knowledge. If they don't have knowledge and they don't have planning and they don't have foresight and they don't have, yes, let's send the Proud Boys down to the Capitol, the seven-point plan that she laid out is a is a is a is an egg, is going to lay an egg. Well, who knows? Now, a lot I have of no idea. Gonna... <laughs> I, I wouldn't be shocked to to see some communications between Proud Boys members and Roger Stone, for example. The Roger objective Stone will be to connect the, the, the sinew between, right, puts the sinew between somebody like that who's a fringe figure and the president. You cannot prove a conspiracy unless the conspirators themselves say we are engaged in a conspiracy in some fashion or other. And that's why they've raised a very high bar. And when I read what they actually say they're going to do or what they're, what they're trying to get, get to, it makes me think that they're not going to clear that bar and that they should have gone with your strategy, which is say Trump abdicated his responsibility to the Constitution. Now, that's not, by the way, I don't know what you You can't indict for that. That is not a criminal act. That is a political act. And that was what the impeachment was for. And he was he was not convicted when he was impeached for his behavior in, you know, on January 6th. 
that was that was supposed to be the punishment in the term. If there is a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the election that Trump participated in, then you got a whole other thing going on where his argument that he can't be convicted for actions while in office as president kind of goes up and uh, kind of goes up in smoke because this is exactly where his immunity would come it would come crosswise of actual you know criminal actions against the very heart of the republic so they got to prove it but pro- they have to prove it they can't just do what they do which is say well he had he did it and he did it and i know he did it and you know he did it and we all know he did it and he did it and let's all sit here for two hours on nicole wallace's show and say he did it five days a week 10 52 weeks a year until the sun burns out in the sky and everybody is dead because unless he said he did it, and unless somebody else says, Trump told me to tell you he did it, the case is not made. And I don't like Trump, as you know. And I believe that he should have been convicted for his actions on January 6th. But do I think that he masterminded a seven-point plan to keep himself in office that was a seven-point plan? I really, really, really doubt it, though I'm willing to be convinced. But I'm not willing to be, but right now the behavior of the committee staff and whoever is leaking is not convincing me that they have the goods or that they're doing anything but just supplying porn to the resistance. So, but we'll see. And uh, we, by the way, I just want to say one thing, which is that we were, we were all prepared on this podcast because, and this is where social media is so dangerous. We're prepared on this podcast to take a pause in the middle with the Supreme Court decision on abortion came down and we're going to just take a pause and then cut out the pause and read the decision and then talk about it because people on Twitter at 915 this morning said, well, I guess this is the day that the abortion decision is coming down. How did, what did they know? They knew nothing and it didn't come down. So why do we fall for it every time? Three people, three, you know, three people from nowhere say Dobbs is going to come down today and we fall for it. We should stop falling for it. They don't know anything. All right, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe and Noah. I'm John Pavoritz. Keep the candle burning.